Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. We are going to be in 1 Samuel 28 if you want to start turning there today. If you remember last week, I left you on a rather large cliff. David had crossed over to the Philistines. He lived a life of deceptions. And it was a deception that worked so well that David was now faced with a dilemma. King Achish of the Philistines wanted David to be his bodyguard for life. If that weren't enough, he wanted David to join the Philistines in their military campaign against Israel. I'm afraid I won't be able to help you off that cliff today. Because now we're going to turn to Saul. We're going to look at Saul's problems. So let's take a look. We're going to look at 1 Samuel uh, 28. Remember, we, we did the first two verses of 28 last week, so we're going to start in verse 3. So 1 Samuel 28, starting in verse 3. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel lamented him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. So the Philistines gathered together and came and camped in Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel together, and they camped in Gilboa. When Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim, or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I might go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. Then Saul disguised himself by putting on other clothes and went, he and two men went with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me whom I shall name to you. But the woman said to him, Behold, you know that what Saul has done, how he has cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land? Why are you then laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? Saul vowed to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid, but what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his form? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped with a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and did homage. And Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am greatly distressed, for the Philistines are waging war against me, and God has departed from me. He no longer answers me, either through prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have called you, that you may make known to me what I should do. Samuel said, Why then do you ask me? Since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary. The Lord has done accordingly, as he spoke through me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. As you did not obey the Lord and did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek, so the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Indeed, the Lord will give over the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. And Saul immediately fell full length onto the ground. And he was very afraid because of the words of Samuel. Also, there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day and all night. The woman came to Saul and saw that he was terrified and said to him, Behold, your maidservant has obeyed you. And I have taken my life in my hand, and have listened to your words which you spoke to me. So now also, please listen to the voice of your maidservant, and let me set a piece of bread before you, that you may eat and have strength when you go on your way. But he refused and said,
said, I will not eat. However, his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to them. So he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. The woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly slaughtered it, and took flour, kneaded it, and baked up the bread from it. She brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they arose and went away that night. And God had his understanding to the reading of his word. Merciful God, we pause to praise you. Without your loving grace, we would be adrift and alone. But you found us. You destroyed our sin and remade us. You clothed us in a robe of your son. And you hold us so tightly that not even the strongest of enemies could snatch us away. We pray now for those that don't know you. Not in a prideful way. Not admiring anything that we have done. But like someone rescued points out to others the need of rescue. Lord, soften their hearts. Draw them to you. And in whatever small way you see fit to involve us, give us your strength and words as we seek to fulfill your great commission. Amen. Well, if you're sitting here this morning and you're wondering how Star Wars got into the Bible, you are not alone. I remember first hearing about the witch at Endor and wondering what in the world Ewoks had to do with the Bible. Actually, George Lucas took several places and characters from the Bible, and used them quite a bit to populate his Star Wars movie. But we're not here to talk about Darth Vader. We're here to talk about Saul. Although Darth Vader does bear a strong resemblance. <laughs> Look it up. I wanted to give you a few moments of levity before we tackled what I found to be a very sad and disturbing passage today. I suppose it shouldn't surprise us that we've ended up here. Based on what we've seen of Saul thus far, we kind of knew that we would get here one day. It's not a day of joy. It was a night of misery and sorrow. And one which we have trouble enjoying. So let's just, let's jump in. Verse 3. We're given a bit of a history lesson. A little recap there. Now Samuel is dead. We knew that. That had already happened. They're just reminding us he's dead and they buried him in Ramah. And we see this little, little section here, Saul is removed from the land, those who are medium conspirators. And, and it gives us a brief moment of sunshine in this dark story here. We found that before Saul disobeyed God with the Amalekites and had the kingdom torn away from him, he actually obeyed the Lord. You see, in Leviticus 19.31 and 26 and 20.27 and Deuteronomy 18.10-12, the Israelites had been instructed that all witchcraft or sorcery or mediums were forbidden. So Saul had dutifully removed them from the land. And we would be happy to hear that Saul finally did something right if it weren't for the nagging feeling that this verse was kind of setting something up. We get to verse 4 and we find out the Philistines have, have gathered together and they camped in Shunem and, and Saul and gathered all Israel together. They camped in Gilboa. And Saul saw these Philistines and he was afraid. If we could pull that map up, I'll just show you here. Sorry, it's kind of washed out because it's a little light. But it, there's Israel right there. You see, there's the uh, Sea of Galilee and there's the Dead Sea down there. That down there is Ziklag. That's what we talked about last week. That's the town that David was given. Uh, this right here is Gath. That's where David originally fled to. Today's story takes place way up here. There's Shunem at the top. And there's Mount Gilboa there at the bottom there. So we know that uh, the Shunem is, is right across a large plain 
from uh, the Mount Gilboa there. We have to wonder a little bit why Saul was so terrified. I mean, we remember that passage back towards the end of chapter 14. Remember that little outline that they gave us of, of Saul's career as, as king? In verse 47, it says, Now when Saul had taken the kingdom over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, the sons of Ammon, Edom, and the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment. So what's different here? I mean, he's been beating these guys up for years. It could have been the battlefield, right? I told you it's a plane. The, the, the Philistines had chariots, which was the modern-day equivalent of tanks, right? And the Israelites certainly didn't have those. So they, the battlefield was set up to give the tactical advantage to the Philistines. But there's something else, though. You see, David had thought that, or Saul had thought that David was out of his hair now that he'd gone off to the Philistines. But now the Philistines are coming together and David with them. And Saul had been very adept at beating the Philistines, but his record against David was pretty abysmal. The last time they met, David had walked through 3,000 men unscathed to get to him. And now the Philistines and David, according to Saul's thinking, were arrayed against him. Saul's problems don't end there. Let's look at verse 6. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, or by Durham, or by so Samuel's dead. The Lord's not responding how he normally would via the dreams of the Urim. And oh, that, that, that village of priests that Saul wiped out, they're not saying very much. So Saul does what any drowning man would do, right? He just he thrashes about for anything that will give him answers. In verse 7, he says to his servants, See for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go and inquire of her. Man, Saul's servants don't miss a beat, do they? There's not a pause there for a Google search or look at the yellow pages. <laughs> Saul says, I need someone that I outlawed and removed from the land. And before he can even get the sentence out, one of his servants has got his hand in the air and he said, tell him where one is. But when your head prophesies and you wipe out a whole village of priests, evil fills that void. Mm. And it just gives us a picture of what the kingdom is like now. There's another problem here. If we can pull up the other map. I zoomed in a little bit here, so we're up north now. We're zoomed in on the battlefield. There's uh, shown where the, the Philistines are. There's where the Israelites would have camped there. And that's Endor. Right? There's the Ewoks right there. <laughs> okay, so if you're looking on the map, you're like, oh, big book. There's, there's dots there. I, I don't really. But this distance right here would have been about two to three miles. And the distance between Shun and Endor would have been about two to three miles. Now imagine you've got 100,000 soldiers out there. They're probably spread out pretty far. So in order for Saul to get from here to here, he can't just go north. He has to go way out and go around the Philistines to get to this witch at Endor. It meant dangerously getting close to the front lines of the Philistines. The drowning men don't think logically. And Saul then, in verse 8, he disguises himself, right? He can't go out in his kingly robes while he's walking around the Philistine area there. And he takes two men with him, and they come to the woman by night. And he says, conjure up for me, whoever I name And the lady, she's skeptical, right? With good reason. She says, you know what Saul has done, how he cut off those who are mediums and spirits from the land. You're trying to trap me. Like, Don't let 
irony of this situation escape you, okay? Because Saul, the one who got rid of the spiritists and the mediums, is now getting a lecture from a spiritist and a medium about how what he's asking her to do is wrong, okay? It's illegal, and she's rightfully suspicious. She thinks Saul and his men might be some sort of a squad out tasked with finishing up the job of cleaning out the mediums. So Saul does what Saul does best. Verse 10, Saul bowed to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon me for this thing. The incongruity of this statement is mind-numbing. Saul, who isn't being spoken to by the Lord, swears on the Lord that the thing that is expressly forbidden in the verses I mentioned before, by the Lord, won't be punished also by the Lord. And the woman says, okay, who can I bring up? She says, bring up Samuel. Now, I don't know, like, I don't, I don't know how she operated there. Maybe people just came in and gave a first name, you know, and I said, uh, bring up Joe, you know, and, and uh, Joe would pop up. And, and then if Joe popped up, she'd be like, you're Pastor Lance, you know. I don't know how that exactly works, but he said bring up Samuel, and she was cool with it. So she brings up Samuel, and when she sees who it is, she freaks out. She cries out with a loud voice. And the woman speaks to Saul, saying, why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. She wasn't expecting this Samuel. Maybe she was expecting a different Samuel, but I don't know. The implication here is that only Saul would want to call up a dead prophet who, by the way, if he were still alive would be calling for Saul and the necromancer's death. But Saul stays cool. And we get to verse 13, and I, I looked at this this week, I was weird, I was reading along, and I'm like, wait a minute, this is weird. Everywhere through this passage, you see Saul, 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 David, 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 you know, all the names. This is the one verse where he's referred to as the king. Right? And I think that draws a little, little uh, emphasis there. Because the king of Israel is now committing a capital offense against Yahweh. The king says to her, do not be afraid, but what do you see? Obviously he can't see, but the woman can. She says, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. Okay, that doesn't help very much. So Saul presses on. He says, what is his form? And she said, an old man is coming up. Ah. You remember before uh, Saul was made king, Samuel had a speech with the Israelites, and he said, what do you call himself? Old and gray. Right? So then he went and found Saul. So the entire life of Saul, he's known Samuel as old and gray. So that works. And then Saul hears that he's wrapped in a robe, and he knows it's Samuel. Who can forget that robe that, that Saul tore when he reached out to grab Samuel? He said, wait, 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 wait. And Samuel looked at him and said, just as you've torn that robe, your kingdom will be torn from you. And given to your neighbor who is more worthy. I'm sure Saul didn't get that. He knows that Samuel, he bows down and pays homage. And this is the first and only time that we'll ever see Saul bow to angels. Right? Up until now, remember, remember Saul's description? Head and shoulders above everybody else. He didn't bow to anybody. But he's desperate. He's desperate. He bows and pays homage. And Samuel, for his part, is far from impressed, right? Verse 15, he said, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Reminds me of my grandpa. He was in his chair, right? You didn't wake up grandpa in the chair. When you're out of the house is on fire, you didn't wake up grandpa. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? 
And Saul answered, he said, I'm greatly distressed, uh, distressed the Philistines are waging war against me. God has departed me and no longer answers me, either through prophets or by dreams. You don't see anything missing there? Before, when, when he was talking, he said, dreams, prophets, and Urim. If you notice when he's talking to Samuel, he doesn't mention Urim. Where's the Urim? It's with David. It's with David. Remember when Saul wiped out that entire village of priests? One of them got away, and he took the Urim with him. So Saul doesn't even have that. He doesn't mention that to Samuel. And right now, he's probably thinking, you know, things are, are, are going pretty well. You know, I know I wasn't supposed to do this, but I'm talking to Samuel. This is working. This is good. Maybe I'll, I'll get some advice. Maybe a pat on the head. Maybe some comfort. But then Samuel speaks again, and he says, Why then do you ask me? Since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary. The Lord has done according to you. Uh, as he spoke through me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. And as you did not obey the Lord, you did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek, so the Lord has done the same to you this day. How Saul's heart must have sunk at hearing the same words from dead Samuel as live Samuel. But it gets worse. Verse 19, moreover, the Lord will also give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Indeed, the Lord will give over the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. This should remind us when Saul was first made king, Samuel went in front of the people and he gave them a warning. He said, follow the Lord. Follow the Lord, you and your king. If you don't, both you and your king will be swept away. God's making good on his promise here. Saul hears that and falls immediately full length upon the ground. This isn't a, oh, I need to sit down. He just full length on the ground. He was very afraid because of the words of Samuel. There was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day and night. We don't know why he didn't eat all day and night. Maybe he was just busy. Maybe he was doing some sort of fasting to prepare for the battle. But he's full length on the ground, in the dirt, face and there it was. It was over. Saul had ignored the voice of the Lord for too long. Now he'd gone and committed an offense worthy of death. That penalty would be paid in less than 24 hours. And I know that, that Saul made the decisions to get here. Right? He made all those decisions, including the decision to be there at that moment. But it still brings us no joy to see a man so totally destroyed, so void of hope. He just collapses on the floor, completely unable to see any way out, and only darkness all around. That doesn't affect you, I don't know what will. When our church handed out meals to the homeless on Thanksgiving, we stopped at one encampment and we had some extra meals, so we, we went to a different one and we went behind Barnes and Noble there and there were some guys back there and we handed out some meals. But we struck up a conversation with a guy that was trying to jumpstart his motorcycle. He wanted to go for a ride. I didn't ask him if he had insurance, but he wanted to uh, ride his motorcycle. And he revealed to us that a few weeks prior to us being there, he'd been shot in the chest with a shotgun. 
Hey, what about the shirt? The shirt on your big old pack right there, blood on it and everything, and you know, pepper marks all around it. He said, I got shot. I jumped on my bike. I got it started. It started the first time. Never done that. It started the first time, and I rode off. And I got a few miles away, and my vision started to come, come in on me. So I pulled over, and I fell over, and I woke up in the hospital. Two days later. trying to spread the gospel too. So I said, well, what would have happened if, if when you laid down there and your vision went out that you just died there? What if nobody had found you? What would have happened? And he didn't miss a beat. It was off, off his tongue as fast as I finished my question. I'd be in a cold black darkness. I said, what? I said, yeah, you know, a lot of people say that uh, when, they, when they have a near-death experience, they see a bright light. I didn't see anything. It was cold black darkness. That's where I'm going. So he pushed a little bit more and said, hey, you know, what if, I, what if I could tell you that we could change that? That there, there could be a better place to go than cold black darkness. And he cut me off. He said, no, no, no. You believe what you believe. I believe what I believe. I'm going to cold black darkness. He was hopeless. And my hope is that our homeless friend doesn't make it to the point where Saul is at here. To the point where God is Giving him all the chances he's going to give him. I'd say he got pretty close to getting shot with a shotgun in the chest. Yeah. At this point in our passage, the woman comes in, she sees Saul face down in the dirt and comes to his aid. But before we get to that, I need to address something. Because I told you this was the weirdest chapter in Samuel, possibly one of the weirder chap chapters in the Bible, right? I mean, we've got people calling up dead people and talking to them. And what is the spiritist medium thing about the word? Blah, blah, blah. So how should we look at this? And I think the, the best way to look at this is to look at what the Bible says about this. Leviticus 19, 31, it says, Do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out or to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. Or Deuteronomy 18, 10, There shall be there shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. That is child sacrifice. They sacrifice their children to dedicate real leaders or, or special favors from God. God. One who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens or sorcery, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. The, 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 verse, the first verse I chose, do not turn to mediums and spirits. That's actually a little literal turning. Like a, uh, when we say repent from your sin, right? You turn 180 degrees and go away from your sin. It says do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Don't turn away from the Lord and go to the mediums and the spiritists. So what do you notice or, or, or perhaps not notice out of those two verses. Does it say, don't go to a medium or a spiritist because you look like an idiot and your friend is laughing and doesn't work anyway? No. In fact, that Leviticus passage that talks about turning to mediums and spiritists, it, it, it seems as if it's saying it's an actual option. And that's difficult to wrap our mind around in this 21st century science-driven society that I mean, who knew? We, we had a question to ask some old dead person. Right? I could just find somebody and call them up for a chat. That really works. 
Let me ask you something. Have you ever noticed that when God says don't do something, he always has a pretty good reason why? Because as high and mighty as we feel today, people still go to, to mediums and spirits. There's a shop in downtown Brentwood right now. You can get your palm read or have your, your fortune told. Don't get me started on astrology. People that think the planets or the stars somehow control our destiny. We should refer to them on how to act, what to do. People have always wanted to hear from a higher power or see the future. But what powers those things? What makes them work? At least well enough to have people keep frequenting those businesses. That shop's been there for years, as far as I can tell. Take a quick look at Acts 16. Paul is walking along, and uh, it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. It was working. It was working. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed, who complained, and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. So let me ask you again. What makes mediums and spiritists works well enough to keep people coming back. Demons. If you look at the Greek word for demon, it's actually daemon. This is how it's pronounced in the Greek. And it literally means intelligence. Right? We know that demons are, are super smart. And we know that they've been around since creation. Right? Or maybe even before creation. They've, they've been here. They've seen us. They've watched Thousands of years go by, and if you think that human beings don't have patterns that we keep, you don't watch the news or look at history. So how easy would it be for a being that's been around for 7,000 years and watched generation after generation after generation know how to tell you what they want you to do? Just as the general rule throughout the entire Bible, have you seen any demons that have your best interest at heart? Especially as a believer in Christ. No. Which is why God says don't do it. <clears throat> and just like when we talked about the Urim and the Thummim a few weeks back, and I, and I mentioned that the Bible didn't really tell us how they worked, right? It kind of gave us a description, a brief description, but didn't really say how it worked because probably some knucklehead would go out there and try and make one and try and make it work. Well, the Bible also doesn't tell us how this necromancer called up Samuel. Because we as human beings are naturally curious. You don't believe it? Tell a two-year-old not to touch something. What's going to happen? Now tell a 45-year-old man who just lost his job, is in danger of losing his house, his family, his car. Tell him not to go to the person that can give him advice on how to land the next one. What's the inclination? Does he trust that God will provide his daily bread and continue the hard work of searching for another job? Or does he run to the medium to try and find a shortcut? Which, by the way, could be the shortest path off a cliff? There is a spirit world out there, brothers and sisters. Yeah. It's real. If you like to look up your astrological sign before you make a decision,
someone goofing around with a Ouija board, run away. Amen. Right. You're with us. Powered by demons. Amen. And we are believers. If you are here and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And he cannot be inhabited by demons. But they can sure make you like that, right? They can sure impact your ability to serve Christ. God says don't do it. And you have to stand here and do the reason. Let's wrap up our passage. Back to poor, pathetic Saul. The woman comes in. She sees him terrified, face down in the dirt. She says, look, I took my life into my hands by helping you. Now listen to me. Do something for me here. Please eat something. Eat a piece of bread. He says, I'm not going to eat. But his servants and the woman convince him. He finally arises from the ground and sits on the bed. She has a fattened calf in the house. She slaughters it, takes flour, kneads it, makes it. It's a heck of a piece of bread, I, mean, I got to say. I call Allison, hey, you're coming home, what's for dinner? Go around having a piece of bread. If that was the piece of bread, I'd be an excited man. John Woodhouse put it. It was a meal fit for a king. The trouble was, it was being eaten by a man not fit to be king. And then we get that last little line. Then they arose and went away that night. And here we find ourselves on another cliff's edge. I told you the last five chapters, they, they go back and forth. And next chapter, we're actually going to go back in time to before this chapter. We're going to bounce around a little bit. This, the narrator is trying to tell the story. He's, he's building it up. Before we get into the application here, I want to tell you a little story. Around April 12th of 1945, a call was placed to the bunker of Germany's Führer. It was for Hitler, and it was from one of his advisors, Joseph Goebbels. Although the Allies were, were pressing in from the West and the Russians were coming in from the East, Goebbels was excited. You see, on April 12th, 1945, American President Franklin D. Roosevelt was dead. Goebbels told Hitler, it is written in the stars. The last half of April will be the, the turning point for us. He was referring to two previous astrological predictions that had forecast the hardest blows for Germany to come at the beginning of 1945, but late April, the return to the Nazis. Unfortunately for Goebbels horoscopes, Hitler committed suicide April 30th. If you want to read some creepy stuff, you can look at how the Nazis were involved in the occult. They were very deep in the occult. Goebbels was not so unusual. Facing ruined men will sometimes turn in their desperation to any resource that they think will give some hope or some direction. And so it was with Saul. And if Saul did nothing else better for us, he provided us with a sad picture of a life lived in defiance of God and showed us what it looks like when time has run out. When God has reached the end of his time to wait. As we seek to understand today's passage just a little bit more deeply, I, I thought we should talk about three truths within it. Our first truth can be gleaned from comparing this week's passage to last week's passage. In last week's passage, David had a dilemma, right? He crossed over the Philistines. Now they wanted him to join the war. And this week, Saul had a very different dilemma. 
Next week, we'll watch as God digs David out of the mess that he created. But this week, it has been painfully evident that Saul is on his own. And so it has been throughout all the Bible. Abel offered the right sacrifice. Cain didn't. God told Cain, why are you angry? Choose to do what's right. That is to offer the proper sacrifice. And our relationship will be well. And Cain went and killed Abel. And was driven from the presence of the Lord. Sent to wander the world and be at no mess. It's like this in our world too. That homeless gentleman I spoke about earlier is in the same boat. He's had the gospel presented to him. When we spoke to him, we found out his mother lived nearby in Pittsburgh, but he wouldn't stay with her because he'd worn out his welcome there. And he had driven himself out into the world. Far from the presence of the Lord. Wandering about and lacking meaning in his life. And so I share with you the first truth from today's passage. And I know it can sound trite. I'm not saying this flippantly, but in this case, it has real truth behind it for the believer in Christ. There is always someone that has it worse than you do. Think about your trials. Think about the things that you've suffered through. The things that you've cried out to God about. Now imagine you don't have God to cry out to. A God that loves you and promises that he has good plans for you. Romans 8.14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Look at the contrast between David and Saul. And witness the fact that no matter what we are going through, unbelievers always have it worse. And I don't say this to shame you. If you're going through something today, I'm not telling you it's not right for you to, to weep for your troubles. I'm just reminding us all to keep the right perspective. Amen. Along the same lines as the first truth, our second truth comes again from looking at Saul's desperation in the face of not having God's help. As we watch Saul's actions in this passage, we may be tempted to think, man, Saul just wanted to hear from the Lord. What's the problem? He, he, was, he was asking to hear from the Lord, and God didn't answer. So he went to the medium. Maybe he wanted to restore his relationship. Maybe Saul was really ready to, to commit. But we find a different story than that. Saul's own words to Samuel give it away. When Saul was speaking with Samuel, what was his goal? What? Why did he do what he'd done? He said, for the Philistines are waging war against me, and God has departed from me and no longer answers me, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have called you. Why? That you may make known to me what I should do. H.L. Nelson put it this way. Saul, like not a few others, had to have guidance not out of love for God, but for fear of making a mistake. We see the foolishness of what Saul is doing in Samuel's response. He says, why didn't you ask me? Since the Lord departed from you and has become your adversary. Samuel is saying, your problem is with God. You don't need information. You need communion. 
You don't need to, to prepare for battle. You need to recover the presence of the Lord. Saul, like so many people out there, wanted the benefits of having a relationship with God and not the actual relationship with God. And herein lies our second truth. I've spoken with true believers in Christ before who believe that they are in Saul's shoes. Folks that they, they believe they've been cut off from God's presence, doomed to his silence, forever under his frown. And if I'm being 100% honest, I can empathize with that conclusion. There are times in a believer's life that, that God's presence can feel distant. I think God has, has cast them off. Sometimes so many, thing so many things happen that maybe God leaves us in affliction for so long that we're tempted to say that God has forsaken us. And we look at passages like this one and we say, see, see, that's me. God is done with me. And we'll have nothing to do with me. So I'll just head out into the world and get my answers from the world. After all, the Bible recognizes that someone can be objectively forsaken. That was the case of Saul. And others can seem to be forsaken or fear they've been forsaken. So how do we tell which is which? Am, am I Saul or am I just feeling discontent? Take a quick look at Psalm 13 with me. This is a short psalm, six verses. <clears throat> this is how a believer responds to feeling distant from God. The psalmist says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sink to see the depths. My enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Whereas Saul was concerned with lack of insight from the Lord, a believer is concerned with God's absence. When God feels distant, a believer will seek after him. And not just his insight. A third and final truth comes to us out of the, the final five verses of our passage today. Those last five verses that are heavy with hopelessness for both King Saul and Israel. And we see that Spirit is making that, that final supper for Saul and it can really only be seen as making someone comfortable before they die. Then we get to that last line that just oozes with despair. And they got up and went away that night. Does this scene remind you of another last supper? Does it not remind you of another one that walked with Christ, that performed miracles in his name? And do you not shudder when you read that verse in John's Gospel, when Judas receives the morsel from Jesus, and then immediately goes out, and it was John was just seeking to tell us the time. He was telling us it was night. Jesus was entering darkness like the outer darkness of hell itself, apart from God, alone. But there was someone else who entered the darkness. Look at Mark.
Mark 15, starting in verse 31. In the same way, the chief priests also, they're, they're describing Christ being on the cross at this point. Along with the scribes were mocking him among themselves, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross, so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. In the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is a mistake that's been made if you're not careful. As we study these passages from so long ago, we can become detached from them. You may begin to think that you are better than, or, or not quite as stupid as, or <coughs> deserving better than Saul or Judas. And of course you would be wrong. For we have all disobeyed God. We have all betrayed Jesus in our hearts and in our actions. But the glory of, of the gospel is that God's son Jesus went through that darkness of God's absence for us. The darkness and the agony of God forsaking us. With Jesus' cry, my God, why have thou forsaken me? Not unlike God has turned away from me and answered me no more. Our third and final truth is, at the battle of Golgotha, Jesus walked into that outer darkness so that all who believe in his name might be saved. Amen. If you are a believer here this morning, have you been seeking the one who endured darkness for you? And if you find yourself here this morning and you haven't met this Jesus, this warrior in the battle of Golgotha, the Savior that went into the darkness for you, and you've been seeking the favor of, of things of God, but now you recognize that you need God himself. This is a good day. We're going to pray now. And then we'll sing one last song. While we're singing, I'll stay up here for the first part of the song there. And if you want to meet this Jesus, this one that would venture into the lonely darkness for you, for me, come on up. I'd love to share Jesus with you. If you're here today and you just want to spend some time praying, feel free. Come on up. If you want me to pray with you, I'd love to. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I just want to read to you. We did it yesterday. We were in men's Bible study. We are studying Ecclesiastes. I just want to read. Listen to this. Ecclesiastes 12, 6. Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel of the system is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God again. There's pictures. That silver cord snaps. Golden bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered. The moment's past. And like Saul, you will be face down in the earth. A lonely night. Praise God that He saved us from that. Amen. Pray. Lord, we again thank you for the truth in your word. We thank you that your Bible isn't a, a cute little self-help guide full of fluffy stories that make us feel better about ourselves. But it's real. And when something is real, Lord, it can hurt. It can be painful. That's what we see today. Lord, I'm not going to lie. I'm happy we're through this chapter. It's a terrible chapter. 
but we cannot avoid it because there are so many souls in our community right now. There are so many people, and that cord is stretched just as tight as it can go. And that bowl is poised to fall and be destroyed. And they need you, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would give us opportunities this week to share your love with people. That you, you would give us your strength to do it and your words to explain it. Lord, that souls would be saved. 